This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. If it's your first time listening, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Erica. And if it's your second, third, fourth, or 31st time listening, I'm still glad you're here. I'm glad you're back. Today, my guest is Anna LeBaron. Anna is the author of The Polygamous Daughter, where she tells her story of growing up as part of a polygamous Mormon cult. In this cult, her dad was the leader, and he was later deemed the Mormon Manson. I can attest that the book is riveting, well-written, and Anna's story is often heartbreaking, but in the end, it's redeemed. It was an honor to speak with Anna today about what she experienced and how she eventually left the cult at the age of 13 and ultimately found a relationship with Jesus. In addition to being an author, Anna has another very cool job. She is a professional book launcher, and that's how we met. It's actually been one year since my book, Leaving Cloud Nine, was published, and I want to thank everyone who's helped share it with the world. If you are a new listener, you may not know much about it, and I want to tell you just a bit. It's a little book about the story of my husband's life growing up as the child of a mother who was addicted to drugs and alcohol and who put him through trauma, abuse, and poverty that no child should ever have to experience. Much like my guest on today's show, my husband Rick ultimately overcame his past through his personal faith in Christ, but not without many years of struggle and heartbreak. I was honored to write the story of his life and share that hope through faith, and I think it pairs well with my guest story today. If you've been through something horrific as a child, you will relate to Anna and to my husband Rick on some level, and I hope both of these stories can be helpful in your personal journey to healing. So listen in and you'll learn something and enjoy the conversation today with Anna LeBaron. Well, today on the podcast, we have Anna LeBaron. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anna. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Erica. I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to your listeners. Well, I think it's kind of fitting that I'm talking with you today because it has been just about one year since my book came out last June. And oh, wow. that's how I met you. Wow. I know. That was a that was a fun experience. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, so for those listening, um, Anna is a professional book launcher. That's something that she does for a living. And we were uh, connected through my company, and she helped me and my launch team um, launch the book. And so um, I'm trying to think of something fun to do for the one-year anniversary, but I haven't come up with anything yet. <laughs> Got to celebrate somehow. So, um, so thanks for coming on. What are you up to today? I'm uh, just working hard, launching books. Um, I also do interviews like this. I coach aspiring authors who want to grow their platforms because I am also a social media expert, which is what allows me to lead launch teams and, and show them what to do, you know, to help the author's book get the most reach, you know, during that release period. So I stay very busy for sure. And, and. I became a grandmother. Yes, I saw that. Congratulations. So that has been one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. I did not know I could contain this much joy and Aww. not burst. 
That's awesome. And you have five kids, right? Correct. All five of my kids are grown up. Okay, so being a grandma, that's a little little bit easier of a job than being a mom. Oh, for sure. <laughs> a lot more fun, I, I, I assume. A lot more fun, for sure. Uh, so in addition to being a book launcher and being a grandma, you also are an author. You have your own book. Uh, that, mm-hmm. What year did your book come out? 2017. Okay, so it hasn't really been that long. Um, and it is a fascinating book about your life growing up in a Mormon cult. And I want to talk about that today. Um, three things I want to talk to you about books, CrossFit and your book. (laughs) So like my favorite subject. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so we'll start with the heavy stuff, get that out of the way and then move on to the fun stuff. If that's cool Mm -hmm. with you. Oh, okay. Sure. So, um, you know, in short, I just will read a little bit here from the back of your book, which your book is called The Polygamous Daughter. And um, the back here, you know, it says my father had 13 wives and more than 50 children. And so, you know, even just those few words, like, you know, you're about to read something really Mm -hmm. compelling, probably something really sad. Um, Can you just kind of give me, I know there's probably a bit of a nutshell version of your life. Um, If you could just give us a little bit of background on that. Sure. So I want to start first by making a differentiation between the modern day uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the fundamentalists who practice the original teachings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there is a difference between the two religions. and the way they um, carry out their faith and walk out their faith. And so I wanted to confirm, you know, just do that right at the get-go because um, that's so important to to make that distinction. Yeah, and and I know I have several friends who are Mormon, and uh, yeah, we definitely don't want anyone to get that confused. (laughs) Right, And, and not everyone is familiar. It's like the word Mormon just conjures up some images for some people. Yeah. And oftentimes they're, they're, the two are conflated and I just want to make sure that doesn't happen in this case. I was born and raised in a violent polygamist cult. My father was the leader. He was known as the Mormon Manson by the news media outlets that would report on the atrocities that he was responsible for. He would order hits on, uh, Uh, people who fled his cult or uh, rival cult leaders um, who um, in the, in that tradition, one of the sacred texts of the Mormon people, um, it talks about a a personage called the one mighty and strong. And my dad believed that he was the one mighty and strong. So anyone else claiming to be that was of course a false prophet and needed to be blood atoned, which was another, um, another doctrine taught by uh, the original founders of the Mormon church, meaning there are some sins that you're, that the blood of Christ can't cover. And so you have to atone for that sin with your own blood, the shedding of your own blood. And so that was what my dad was, uh, he would refer to those hits as blood atonements. And, and that's what um, our family was known for my family of origin. And do you have any idea how, kind of uh, group, you know, forms out of like Mormonism itself, you know, that you like you said, like it's a religion and that's and it's a fine. But like, how, how do you think that these kind of like uh, messed up sex of that end up developing? Well, it developed so it, like it didn't just develop out of nowhere. The mm-hmm. the 
original teachings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the founders, the you know, the original members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's why they call it fundamentalism, mm-hmm. because these people are teaching the fundamentals of their faith. Mm. Um, the modern day church has disavowed polygamy and disavowed a lot of the doctrines that were taught by the original members of the church. And so they're, they're a, a nicer, gentler, a kinder version of it. Um, my father was part of, of my family of origin goes all the way back to a man named Benjamin F. Johnson, who was the spiritually adopted son of Joseph Smith. So I'm a first generation non-polygamist. Mm, wow. And because from back to Joseph Smith, I come from a line of people who taught the fundamentals and who believed and practiced the fundamentals. And you pretty much left the group when you were 13. Um, Yes. At what point in your life did you start to realize that something wasn't right about the way that you were living or your family was living? I, it was after I got out Mm -hmm. and I, I was about 15. So about two, three years after I got out, I was reading a book that I came across that had been written about my family. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that I was part of a crime family and that people were dead that I loved and cared about that I had not seen in a long time. And that people that I loved and cared about were the ones who were going around killing the people, the others. So I mean, it was very, it was very shocking mm-hmm. and traumatizing to read this book and to know all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, this was my family. Yeah. So when you left at 13 and went to live with your sister, mm-hmm. you it seems like you did that more out of because you, you didn't want to go back to where your mom was trying to take, Correct. take you. So you thought, mm-hmm. I'm just going to stay here. But it wasn't until two years after that that you really recognized uh, the reality of your family history. Right. And it wasn't until after that even that I realized that I had been born and raised in a cult. Hmm. And where did you find the, I mean, that, that would be somewhat of an identity crisis. I can only <laughs> imagine. Um, how did you deal with that knowledge? How did you take that process it and, um, you know, kind of use it to grow, I guess. I mean, I was, I was a teenager when all of this, when I ran away, when I found out, about my family of origin and the history around it. When I recognized that I was, had been raised in a cult, all of that happened over time and, and and coming to grips with it and under, and really understanding um, the importance of what, what I was taking in and how it affected me. That took decades. Mm -hmm. There was no, just coming to grips with it and wrestling it and then, okay, it's done. Um, It took me decades to finally understand the gravity of the nature of my family of origin, because it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to take it all in and then to, to deal with the ramifications of it all, knowing that I have relationships with people who've done horrible things Mm-hmm. but I love them and care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I wanted to do in writing my book was to humanize the, those people yeah. who had, some of them had done very horrible things 
one, because they didn't have a choice. Two, they were brainwashed. And, you know, if they didn't follow my dad's orders, that put a target on their own back. And so um, many of them believed that what they were doing was right. Um, and, and I will say, just for your listeners, that there's nobody in my family now that believes that any of that was right, that nobody believed my dad was any kind of prophet. Um, all, and and all, all of your siblings that are still alive? Correct. Wow. I mean, that's pretty... I mean, in a way, that's miraculous in and of itself that so many people have been able to find their way out of it. Well, one one of my friends put it this way, and it just so uh, correctly um, uh, tells the story. But there wasn't anything about my family of origin that was redemptive in nature. If there had been anything good about what was happening in that cult, uh, it might still be around today. Um, it, but it was so horrible and so bad and so ridiculously, um, incredibly wrong Mm -hmm. that eventually it burned itself to the ground and everyone is out. And that is a miracle. Now, are there other groups like that still around? There are other fundamentalist groups. They're, they're all over, especially the Southwest United States and in what's called the Mormon Corridor, which is Utah all the way north into Canada and then all the way south into Mexico. That corridor of, is, is, has a lot of people that live fundamentalism, but not necessarily um, the, the violent um, version of it that my father was responsible for. Yeah, I you know I don't want to give away the book. I want everyone to read it, but um, there are some pretty harrowing scenes in there. Some pretty things that are pretty hard to read. Um, so it must have been. How was that process writing the book and just oh going back into your memories? I mean, I can only imagine what an emotional wreck you must have been. Yeah, I I did that with the care of a professional counselor that I was seeing at the time and I had been seeing her for about a year before I started the writing process. And, you know, we had, uh, she was treating me for post-traumatic stress. And, um, and so when I started writing the book, um, she said, now my job is, is going to change a little bit. And my job now while you're writing is to make sure that you're not re-traumatized in the telling of your story. Did you ever feel you were going down that path? Um, I don't think so because I had already done a lot of the inner healing work needed to be able to tell my story and not be re-traumatized. I began seeing a professional counselor in 1995 and have been um, under the care of a professional um, most of the time, you know, during that period of time. And so it was, um, I had already done a lot of the healing work needed um, to be able to do this and and to be able to talk about my family of origin without shaking uncontrollably, meaning being triggered and that adrenaline rush uh, causing you to shake uncontrollably. And that yeah. used to be what ha- would happen to me when I would talk to m- just girlfriends sitting around the table at a dinner um, telling a story about my past. I would end up uh, shaking uncontrollably mm-hmm. and I didn't recognize what was happening to me. I didn't know to go and tell somebody this is what happens when I talk about my family, <laughs> you know, um, for a lot of years, that's just how it was. Um, 
my, my counselor talks about re-exposure therapy. And, and so being able to tell my story now um, in, in all of these ways that feel very safe to me, um, being able to tell it is re-exposure therapy. And each time I do, there's more healing for me. Mm, that's really interesting. I, had, I haven't heard that before. Um, when you think about your father now, what do you think of him now? What are your thoughts when you look at his life? My father was mentally ill. Um, for probably the majority of his adulthood and, and mental illness is something that, um, I don't, I don't use it as an excuse or to excuse anything that he did. He was very responsible and he should be held responsible for, um, the pain and the suffering that he has caused in this world. Um, but he was mentally ill and, um, a lot of the mental illness that, I mean, he was never diagnosed because people with his kinds of symptoms generally don't feel like they need any help from anybody. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's very hard to get them treatment because they don't think they need help. They are very right in their own minds. Yeah. And in his own mind, he was supremely right. He considered himself to be the mouthpiece of God, which is kind of a uh, like, um, a sign that there's mental illness there. So, yeah, you know, it kind of is a little circular path of, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, these kind these things kind of feed on each other. And, um, now what, I don't know that I fully grasped this, but you talked a little bit about like how it was kind of like a, when people talked about Jesus, um, Mm -hmm. or when your dad talked about Jesus, what was the, uh, what was the thought process around Jesus? Well, um, in our family, um, the word Christian was spoken with scorn and derision. Um, they, there, you know, there was, um, they would say, you know, Christian, these Christians believe that you can, um, you know, get saved and then live like the devil and then die and go to heaven, you know? And, you know, they just had this very skewed view of what Christianity was and what it meant and, and the person of Jesus, um, the person of Jesus that Christians believe in and the person of Jesus that, um, that is taught in the doctrines and the theology of the, the faith practice that Joseph Smith taught. Uh, those two people, Jesus, are different. Mm. It's not the same Jesus. Okay. And so they use the word, and, and we think as Christians, oh, they're talking about the same person. But when you dive deep into the theologic, the theology, um, it's not the same. And so um, my family believed that the Christian version of Jesus was just a namby-pamby, you know, just forgive everyone and grace for everyone, you know. And, and they spoke about that. And that's what I was raised feeling and raised um, hearing. And it just wasn't a positive. There wasn't a positive spin on it at all. And yeah. so it took me a long time after I got out of the cult and I was enrolled in a little Christian school um, to even hear the name Jesus and not feel icky and triggered on the inside. Now, your sister that you moved in with, she and her husband had become Christians after leaving the cult themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and would you say they were a, a pretty big influence in directing you towards the faith? 
Well, they enrolled me in that little school. There's, it's a long story, but they had, um, when, when all the, the, the mass departure from Houston left, when my mom left, um, which, and got, went back to Denver, which is where I didn't want to go. Um, Mark and Lillian were left with a um, garage full of this curriculum and desks and equipment and all that that was specific to a uh, kind of um, Christian school called ACE. Mm-hmm. And there was an ACE school about half a mile from their house. So they exchanged the, all that curriculum and desk and equipment for my tuition and enrolled me in that little school, even though they were still in the like on the fringe of that fundamentalist faith that they grew up in mm-hmm. or didn't grow up in, but they were, you know, they were, my, my sister was grew up in it. She was born into it, but her husband had converted into it. And, you know, they were on the fringe. Um, they were still not, you know, believing in Christianity, but they had all this curriculum and they thought that be being in a pub, in a public school versus this Christian school, the Christian school was the lesser of two evils. <laughs> So, um, so that's how I ended up in that little school and I accepted Christ and eventually both of them did too. That's awesome. How, how old were you when you accepted Christ? I was 13. Okay. Um, so you, at what point in your life did you feel like, I mean, this, since your book just came out in 2017, so, mm-hmm. you know, you waited many years to write your story. Um, mm-hmm. what was it that like made you say that you were ready to do it? Well, um, I had tried to write it, uh, I don't know, countless times, you know, sit down at a computer and you stare at the cursor that's blinking mm-hmm. on the blank page and. And where do you even start with a story that has that, that's this big? Where how do you even start typing? Where mm-hmm. where is you know the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> and and how do you do that? And and I wrestled with that for a long time. Um, I really believe that when it was the right time for me to tell the story, um, the right resource came along, and I ended up going to a writers' conference in January of 2014. And at that conference, um, the, you know, the, the brochure for it said, when you leave here, you know, what, if you engage in this process, you will leave with the working title of your book, chapter titles and subheadings and this and that, and, you know, who your audience is and, you know, all these, these, um, very big promises. And I was like, well, if this is the case, then sign me up. (laughs) And, and I and, and it delivered. When I left that conference, I had already written the first, you know, few words of the book and and knew where I was headed, um, knew the process that I was going to use to to get the story from the inside of me to the outside, so that I could get that first draft written mm-hmm. and on the page. And and it and it really worked because once I left there. Within a matter of months, probably three or four months, I had about 40,000 words captured in a Word document that that became my first draft. Now, you're a writer, so you know that the first draft is not the end of the story. No. (laughs) And and there was a lot of work to do after that. Um, But just getting that part done was such a relief to me. Because yes. I knew that no matter what, 
me having just gotten it from the inside to the outside, externalizing the story um, was such a powerful, cathartic experience for me. Yeah, I can only imagine that. Um, but, and yes, writing is rewriting as they say. Yes. <laughs> um, so one thing I, I would love if you could talk about, uh, you talk about in the book, um, that you took it, the manuscript to you, to your mom. Um, mm-hmm. and your mom is not in the same place that you are. Um, tell us about that experience. Well, when I started writing, um, I, I had, I was once again in contact with my mother, my mother is still a fundamentalist Mormon and, and lives in a community with other fundamentalists. But in this community, they allow contact with outsiders, and clearly I'm an outsider. And so um, I was in contact with her, I, and I told her I was going to start writing. Um, she was very nervous about how I was going to portray her, you know, what I was going to say, and you know, how, how it was all going to come out. And you know, I told her, Mom, there's no, there's nothing inside of me that is wanting to dishonor you. Yeah. I just want to be able to tell my story. And so, so I, I helped her to just kind of sit tight. And I told her, once I turn in the manuscript to the publisher, I will print it out and I will get on a plane and I will come and I will read it to you myself. Mm. Um, and the reason why I wanted to do that is because um, there was so much about my life that my mom was not aware of. Um, one, you know, moms don't know everything about their kids' lives. They just don't, <laughs> even yeah. in the best of families. Right. Um, and two, my mom was gone a lot when I was little. And then, and then after the age of 13, she wasn't aware of anything about my life because we weren't connected. Mm-hmm. And so a majority of what I wrote in the book, she was, it was going to be new to her. And what I didn't want, I know my mom has suffered a lot. Um, my mom doesn't believe that my father was any kind of prophet anymore. Now she believes there's another one. And, you know, that's a whole different thing. It's a whole another conversation. But um, my, mo- my mother has a lot of regrets about the suffering that her children endured because of my father, Herbal LeBaron. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that she it was going to cause her grief um, to, to read the book. And I, what I didn't want to happen was for the book to be published and, and one to be delivered to her doorstep and then her sit there alone in her grief mm-hmm. as she read. Um, I, because of my faith and because of my um, expression of faith in, in Jesus and, and the goodness of Christ, um, I couldn't allow her to sit in her suffering and her grief alone. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a comfort to her in her grief with my very presence so that she could see with her own eyes, I'm there, I'm alive and I'm well. And, and so my very presence was what I wanted her to be comforted with while she read or while I read it to her. And I did, I read the whole thing out loud to her and we cried buckets of tears together. Um, It was very, very healing for me for my mom to hear my stories, Um, for my mom to know the grief that I went through, the suffering that I went through. Mm -hmm. And even though she still believes differently than I do, um, just seeing her grieve the things that happened to me was healing for my heart. Yeah, that would be 
I can imagine some sense of closure about things. Um, I mean, she still believes in the doctrines that got us into that mess in the first place. Yeah. And so that's a rest. That's a tension. I have something I have to hold in tension mm-hmm. that she still believes these things and she would do it all again, mm. you know? And so yeah. that's hard to, to grapple with, but I'd have no other choice except to grapple with that in, yeah. in order to be in any kind of relationship with her. And, and again, my faith and the way I walk that out and my, um, my, my trust in the goodness of Christ um, is what allows me to continue to grapple with that and to stay in a relationship with her that feels safe to me because of the boundaries that I set in that relationship. Yeah. What's your hope for her in the future? My hope for her um, is is for a softening of her heart um, um, and for her to be able to acknowledge, um, to one day be able to acknowledge just how devastating the religion that she believes in um, has been on the lives of her children. Um, I don't know that that will ever come about because she's 88 now and it's, it's just um, wrong thinking on my part to, to be in a relationship with her just so I can make her change or cause her to change. Um, she's, she has her own free will and her own agency and, and that's something that I recognize and that's really important, you know, just as humans recognizing that other people have free will in their own agency. Um, and she gets to believe whatever brings her comfort and, you know, whatever she desires and wants. Um, however, you know, be, being, you know, 88, she's forgotten a lot of things too. And so, and so I may not ever get the thing that I would rather see. Um, but in the meantime, I can have a relationship with her that is meaningful to me and hopefully to her, um, in ways that don't, um, cause me additional pain because I have established some very defined boundaries about what we can and cannot talk about, you know, and, you know, just how things are between us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad when the highest and best thing that your own mother wishes for you is that you would just abandon your life that you have here and then move to where she is and marry a man with umpteen wives. Is that what she would prefer still? A hundred percent. Yes. Now are your siblings, um, well, first of all, you have a lot of siblings, but you had (laughs) probably nine full siblings, right? I have, there's seven of us that my, my, that are from my mother and my father. So I have six full blood siblings. And are you in contact with them? And are they in contact with your mom as well? Um, most of my, I'm in contact with most of my siblings. Yes. Um, my, not all of them are, are comfortable being in a relationship with my mom just Mm -hmm. because she still believes the things that devastated our lives. And, And that's difficult. And I understand it because I was in that same position for a long time. And so it is, it's just a really tricky situation. There's no um, handbook for how to navigate this kind of family. Yeah. Well, I think that is very admirable how you, how you are dealing with that relationship with your mom. And I love that perspective of not, 
not being in a relationship with her to try to change her. I think that can probably translate to a lot of our family relationships, um, even, even more normal ones, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would be setting myself up for a disappointment. Yeah. Because she's 88. (laughs) Yeah. That's a long time to be, uh, to be thinking one way and then to switch. It's not likely. Um, correct. Yeah. I think that's pretty amazing though, that you, you've kept that up. Um, now two years out after the book, um, how are things going with it? Um, are you continuing to get opportunities with it? Do you plan on writing more? Yes. Um, the book is in its third printing. So that was very, um, surprising and fun. Um, just to like, Oh, they... what does that mean though? What does third printing mean? <laughs> um, it means that like the publisher prints, the first printing of a book is, is from what I understand in the publishing world, the first printing is what the publisher thinks they can sell about the first year. Oh, okay. And so my first printing ran out about nine months in. So, okay. so I exceeded their expectations, which is always good, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and then the second printing ran out. So they did it. And the second printing isn't as large as the first one, just because a book has a lifespan. And so they don't want to print and have to house and warehouse all these books that don't get sold over a long period of time. And so the second printing is a little smaller and then the third printing is smaller, just depending on book sales. But it did go to a third printing. And so that's um, exciting and fun for me. Um, it's been well received and I do continue to get opportunities just like you and I talking here today is another opportunity for me to, um, tell my story and talk about the book and, and hopefully impact the lives of the readers because I did write the book with some very specific goals in mind for how I wanted the book to be, um, for what I wanted to do with the book Mm -hmm. and the impact I wanted it to have on the readers. Did you hear from people outside of your family that had grown up in similar situations that really appreciated what you wrote? Yes. I get emails and private messages um, weekly about people that have read the book. And even, you know, having the people that I hear from have experienced, generally speaking, childhood trauma, abuse, and neglect. Mm -hmm. And and those are the themes that uh, people that have an experienced polygamy um, can identify with yeah. and, and that resonate with them. Yeah, there was definitely um, quite a few things I think people could relate to in there. Um, yeah. Now, so how long ago did you become a book launcher for other people's books? <laughs> well, I did. I began launching books um, in 2015. Okay, so you did. So before you wrote your book, or probably yes. in the middle of writing your book, um, and how did that start? Is this the? I feel like you told me the story about the Jen Hatmaker story. Yes. <laughs> so um, I did not have a book contract at the time. I had turned in my manuscript and three sample chapters to my agent, and she was shopping my book to publishers. And my agent told me that authors are responsible for marketing their own books, even though the publisher does certain things, and they do, and they do it really well. Um, they, selling the book is on on the author. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I've had a 17-year career in sales and marketing in a whole different industry, so I think I can figure out how to market a book. So I started learning about uh, book marketing and reading different books that are available on that topic, and um, 
And I started hearing about this thing called a launch team. And I was like, well, what happens on a launch team? Because my best friend had been on a launch team for a book that she, for an author that she knew. And so my friend was telling me from, she's in this private Facebook group, which seems really secret and special, you know, <laughs> she's in the group and she's telling me, pre-order the book. When it comes in the mail, take a picture of yourself holding the book and post it on your social media. And then as you read the book, post your favorite quotes on socials. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do those things. And I was doing them just because my friend was telling me, and it's my BFF of 37 years, so you don't just tell her no, you know? (laughs) And so I applied to be on Jen Hatmaker's launch team in March of 2015 because I thought, I want the inside scoop. I want to be on the inside knowing what a launch team does. Yeah. Well, three days after that, I get an email from the publisher saying, we're so sorry. We had 5,000 people apply for 500 spots. And you weren't one of the ones picked. Mm-hmm. Here's here's four sample chapters for you to read in advance, kind of like a consolation prize. And I read the chapters, devoured them. You know, if you've read her blogs, uh, she's just hilarious. And, you know, it yeah, was she's a very she's <laughs> so really just, good at humor writing. Yeah. So I zoomed through those four chapters and then took to Twitter and basically thanked her by saying, Jen Hatmaker, I'm one of hashtag the 4,500 because that's how many of us got the email. And I said, we're a people group with our own hashtag. (laughs) Uh, They they got a tasty morsel of hashtag for the love to devour in advance. And basically thanking her for those chapters. She replied to my tweet and the hashtag I created, the 4,500, went viral on her Twitter feed mm. with all these women saying me too, except it's a different me too than the yeah, one. Not that now. me too. Not that one. Um, and um, somebody I didn't know at the time created a Facebook group called hashtag the 4,500 and started inviting people to join, which I joined immediately. And, and then her and I became the co-administrators of this group. And eventually because of how I am hardwired, um, my, one of my strengths is I'm an includer. So I went to the highways and byways and, and gave the link to every single person on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook that said I was one of the 4,500 too. And eventually 1,300 women joined that group. 1,300 wow. women. Bigger than her real launch group. Yes. And because I knew three things about launching books because of my friend, um, I told these women Jen Hatmaker is not the boss of us. We can launch this book if we want to. Like we just take our four chapters that we've read. We take our favorite quotes. We post pictures of them. And then we can go and steal images off Jen Hatmaker's webpage and Facebook page about of the book cover and, you know, and post those on our socials. Like that's how you launch a book because that's what Madeline told me. And, and we did, we, and I, I would, I would, tell them to do things because social media is just so intuitive for me. I was just telling them what to do to help get the word out about the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we did this, there was 1300 of us just doing all these things. And, um, a week after we formed the group and started our shenanigans, uh, Jen Hotmaker joins the group too. Oh, and, fun. and we went nuts, uh, of <laughs> course. <laughs> and then not too long after that, uh, two of the publishers, marketing people get added to the group. And I'm thinking, Oh no, now I'm in trouble. 
because <laughs> I'm kind of the ringleader. <laughs> yeah. So I messaged him and said, is there anything different I should be doing? Or, you know, is there, am I doing anything wrong or what should I be doing differently? And they said, basically, just keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, carte blanche. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do this thing. And so from March to August, and, and you've launched a book before, so you know March to August is a long uh, launch team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time period. Long. From March to August, 1,300 women just went nuts about the book. And we hadn't read the whole thing. We I had was going to say, chapters. I feel like they should have at least given you a complimentary copy at that point. <laughs> well, they kind of sort of did, but I didn't want to tell the girls yeah. in the group at the time because that would have been like, um, uh, this is probably not right. <laughs> um, but they did give my me and the other girl a copy of the book, you know, an advanced copy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just kept that to ourselves because we just didn't think it was fair. Because we were all in the same boat, you know? Yeah. Um, and eventually the book came out number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Right, right behind Go Set a Watchman, which nobody was going to beat that no matter what. Yeah, that would be a so, tough one. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. And so that happened. And then, so that finished, we did that in August. And let's just say in October, at the end of October, I was doing my quiet time one day. And I still don't have a book contract, Okay. And I hear God speak to me and not in an audible voice. Um, it just, you know, in that quiet place in my heart. And it was basically start your launch team, called it, call it the 4,500 launches mm-hmm. and, and then uh, promote other first time authors while you're waiting for your turn. Oh wow! And I went, Oh, okay. So I did that. I started the group and then I didn't know how to find new authors because, you know, I didn't know a lot of authors at the time. <laughs> um, and a week to the day of me starting that group, I tweeted an author, um, and it, I didn't know who she was at the time. And it turned out that the author I had tweeted because she was releasing a memoir in January, I just asked if I could be on her launch team. Cause you know, when you're on a launch team, you get a free copy of the book, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I asked to be on her launch team, not knowing who she was. And it turns out this is my cousin. Oh, that's what you talked about on Jen Hotmaker's podcast, right? Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, that's my so cousin see, and I. Um, so did you see? You saw what her book was about, and so you were interested. No, I no. the the title of her book did not give it away. I did not know who she oh, was. Wow, that's crazy. And so her the book her title her book title is The Sound of Gravel, and it's her story of escaping uh, the Mormon cult that I, that she was born in. Basically the same one I was born in, but a different faction of it. Mm. Um, she was born on, she's the daughter of my, my uncle Joel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were raised separately because there was a lot of um, very difficult stuff between my father and his brother, Joel. So at what point and, did you make that connection? Well, I was, um, I had already tweeted her and asked if she had a launch team and then I see a Goodreads review of her book. So I thought, okay, I'll go read the books. I've already offered to promote it. Let's go see <laughs> if it's any good. <laughs> and in that Goodreads review, there was no um, indication of this familial co- connection between us. A comment on the Goodreads review said, I've read a lot of books about polygamy and this is one of the great ones. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I stumbled upon here? Yeah. 
And so I rec- I went to her Twitter feed, clicked on her website, started reading her history page just to see which fundamentalist group she came out of because there's a lot of them. And then as I'm scrolling down, I see a picture of my Uncle Joel and my stomach just drops. Mm. And then I keep scrolling and there's my dad's mugshot um, because our our two families have a modern day Cain and Abel story where my father is the modern day Cain mm. um, who ordered a hit on his own brother that was carried out when Ruth was three months old and I was three years old. Oh, wow. And so our two families hadn't spoken in four decades, very much separate. And then I tweeted her publicly asking to be on her launch team, not knowing who she was. And so then when you figured it out, did you email her? Like, surely you wanted to tell her immediately. I I DM'd her on Twitter and just said, listen, I did not know we were related when I tweeted you. And I did not intend to cause you harm or pain or any kind of additional suffering Mm -hmm. um, by connecting to you in this public way. And so if you want me to, I'll delete both of the tweets, you know, because I retweeted her again and said, you know, the second one said, I did not know we were related when I tweeted you, um, I'm Herbal LeBaron's daughter, and I escaped the cult when I was 13 because I wanted to put distance between myself and what my father had done mm-hmm. for her to know that I wasn't a part of that or condoning any of that. Um, yeah, and right. So we eventually yeah. connected, and she replied to my DM, and, and we began a conversation that led to her mailing me an advanced copy of her book, which then led to a phone call between the two of us that lasted several hours. Mm -hmm. And so here we are at the end of that phone call and, you know, we've covered a lot of ground and, um, and at the end I said, okay, so can we get back to the original question? Um, do you already have a launch team? (laughs) (laughs) And she says, (laughs) she says, what's a launch team? And I just said, I'm your girl. (sighs) That's awesome. And I created a, I formed a team of 250 people um, from that original 4,500 <laughs> um, and said, help me launch this book. And, and we, we did, we launched it. It became an instant New York times bestseller. And, and, and that's when I, having never been on a formal launch team so that I would know how to do a launch team. Um, that's when I recognized that what I did, that there was something special about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then after that, I did get an opportunity to be on a, on a real, quote, launch team and, and realized that the things that I ask my launch teams to do go way above and beyond what happened in a traditional uh, launch team. Yeah. And so um, I recognized that, oh, um, there's a lot of um, potential that's not being tapped in the way that books are launched traditionally and in my way I think is way better. So, (laughs) so did you then approach a publisher about like working for them? No, people started approaching me. That's the best saying, would you, would you be interested in launching this book? Would you lead this launch team? Um, I've never advertised and I've never approached anyone. Well, I have to take that back. I did. I did a very public uh, Instagram post when I found out that John Christ has a book deal yeah. and has a book coming out in spring of 2020. And I, I very publicly 
uh, tagged the publisher and said, um, I'm just going to put all my cards on the table here and say, I want to launch this book. <laughs> and, and did we get a response? <laughs> um, so it's not official. Um, there's nothing official about it, but my hopes are very, very high. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> That's great. Well, so is this kind of, I mean, is this what you're doing now as your full-time career? Yes. This oh, is wow. my bread and butter now. Um, leading so launch cool. teams is like, like, you know, you people talk about um, getting to do the thing that they're passionate about yeah. and they get to do work that matters and that uh, doesn't feel like work to them. Yes. And that, you know, that's when you are in the sweet spot when your work doesn't feel like work. Oh, I feel and, like, and that's, yeah. And that is exactly where I'm at. Um, it's, it's such a divinely appointed time. I could not have orchestrated this if I tried. Mm -mm. Um, all of the things that happened and that came out of that tweet, can you believe my life was changed by a tweet? (laughs) It blows my mind. That's pretty cool. And Uh, so now I do, I, I was able to, um, quit my 17 year career in sales and marketing in a different industry. And now I just do marketing of books on social media. I do remember when I was talking with the publishers last year and they like, oh, yeah, we're going to have, like, a professional book launcher. And I was like, a professional book launcher? Like, I had no idea that was a thing. Um, but I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. It was it's just really the best nice. gig ever. Uh, so what are – I? can you give us any more of the authors or titles that you've worked with? Um, yeah, I've, I've uh, launched seven New York Times bestselling books, wow. which is fun for me to say. I've launched over 60 books seven of them New York Times bestsellers, and many, many more that have hit other lists, but not the New York Times, Yeah, that's um, a big one. which the New York Times is the, you know, one that everyone wants to be on, you know, of course, of course. <laughs> um, but like Rachel Hollis, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing, mm-hmm. Bob Goff, um, two of Jen Hatmakers, you know, For the Love, which was the first yes. one, and then of Mess and Moxie, um, she has another one coming out in the spring, which I hope, of course, to be the one to, to launch that one as well. Um, and so there's um, my cousin Ruth. Um, hers is also, I did recently Gary Sinise's um, mm. Grateful American. Okay. And that one also was a New York Times bestseller. I think that's seven. I don't know. That's pretty but, cool. That's that's pretty cool. And I mean... Uh, congratulations to everyone on the team of Girl, Wash Your Face. <laughs> I know. I know. That one was like wildfire. That was <laughs> like nothing I've ever seen. Like, like nobody's ever seen. I and know. So, oh, my gosh. And particularly proud of that one just because of the way it happened was so unique. Um, mm-hmm. The way it didn't hit the list right out of the gate. And then, mm, that's interesting. you know, working with the author and, and kind of capitalizing on some of that momentum and, and sharing with her the kinds of things that she could do to keep that momentum going. Mm -hmm. Um, and it all happened because, and we, me and her, me and Rachel Hollis having this conversation happened because, uh, one of the booksellers was shipping books way early Mm -hmm. and, you know, they, um, the way the New York Times counts the books and the book sales and stuff, they all have to happen in that first week. 
and the sales have to count that first week mm. in order to, you know, have a, the best chance at making that list, you know? Right. And so one of the booksellers was, was shipping early and I just said, okay, let's, um, I know this is probably a big problem. Um, and then it goes against one of our goals, which is to make a list, you know? Yeah. Um, but instead of looking at it as a problem, let's look at it as a benefit and go on your socials and ask all the readers that get those books in the mail and invite them to post a picture of it and to tag you and to say where they got it so other people can go buy books. And and let's turn one book sale into 10 or 20 mm-hmm. by getting some exposure and for that one book sale to turn into more before the release date so that we have all those sales that count. Well, we still did not make the list even with all of that, but that um, piece that of invite your readers to tag you in a post and, and comment on those and, and create some energy around that um, event um, just created a groundswell of people also getting the book and being excited about it and posting pictures of it. And that created momentum and energy and a groundswell that eventually landed her on the list weeks after her book release. Yes. And then eventually a number one New York Times bestseller. Yeah, I was <laughs> so, like, and then it just kept going and going. It kept going and it's still going. I mean, it's, yeah. she just she just said that Girl Stop Apologizing has sold over a million copies. Jeez, that's which blows my mind that I had even the smallest part in the success of that book. Yeah. Just it's so gratifying well, to do work and that and that it's work that matters and that actually changes lives. Yeah. Well, I think you've definitely proven your um the the person for the job on these book launch teams. So very, very cool. I actually need to, is there a place where you can apply to be on these teams? Because I don't feel like I see them come into my feed and I'm certainly a person who would want to be on them. Right. Well, if you know of an author that's writing a book, if they're, you know, if you have a favorite author and you follow them on all their socials and you get word that, you know, their book, you know, that they're writing a book or that they have a contract or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, turn on notifications for their their socials, like figure out how to get your notifications to where every time they post, um, you'll get a, um, a notification for that. Okay. Because that's where they get, where they get posted is usually on Facebook because most launch teams happen in Facebook groups. Yeah. And so they'll post on their Facebook page that they're forming a launch team. And so, and and then also, um, uh, publishers, email lists. If you have certain publishers or the authors, publishers, the authors that you love, subscribe to their publisher's email lists. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I launch books all the time. I'm always launching books. And so um, I have a private group that I'm um, curated mm-hmm. of people who will actually follow through and read and review books because reviews are such a big part of being on a launch team. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if people want to be part of that group, if you private message me or send me a screenshot of your Goodreads review of any book and an Amazon review of any book, then I can get you in that group and you'll know about all the different book launches that I lead. Very cool. I may have to be, I may have to do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and the people in that group get to pick and choose. If I'm leading a launch team for a book that they're just not the target market for and it's not interesting to them, they just scooch past that one and wait for the next one. And so 
nobody's required to do anything except, you know, actually read and review the book if they sign up for a launch team. So that's one of the fun things that I get to do is, you know, share this joy of reading new books, you know, with uh, so many people. Yes. And I think um, one thing I've heard you emphasize is, and I've heard a lot of authors emphasize is, um, buy books and buy your friends' books. And um, I think sometimes people, you know, see, oh, so-and-so from, you know, that I know from work or, you know, however you know someone on Facebook, you know, has written Mm -hmm. a book. Um, and too many times you don't, you don't buy it. You don't do it, but, um, let's keep books alive and well and getting, Mm -hmm. you know, let's keep authors writing and keep the good stuff coming. And the way to do that is to buy the books. Yes. So here's, here's what I tell people because a lot of people think, oh, my TBR stack, you know, my to be read stack is way too high. I can't buy more books right now. And, and here's what I have to say about that. Um, if you have a TBR stack or if you have books that you've purchased and never read because of that ever changing TBR stack where you just the next one, you know, you may never get to that one that's sitting there mm-hmm. waiting. Um, if you have a TBR stack in books that you've never read, this makes you a patron of the arts. Yes. So true. People support the opera and theater and ballet and never show up and watch a single uh, thing. Yeah. Never go and hear the music, but they, they send millions of dollars and they get their names on buildings and stuff. And they're called patrons of the arts. I'm saying if you spend, you know, 1495 on your friend's book that published, um, even if you do not intend to read it because you're not the target audience, um, that makes you a patron of the arts. And gift it to somebody or think about yeah. like, oh, would you go out and have a glass of wine with this person? Well, then buy their book because yeah, it's probably absolutely. the same price. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, most of us can afford to spend, you know, 10 to 15 bucks without, you know, missing a mortgage payment or whatever, you know? So, so yes, I tell people all the time, buy, buy books, buy your friends' books. Um, yeah. When, a, about when an author, you know, has the pre-order phase of their book launch, uh, pre-order that book. Yes. Oh my gosh. Pre-orders matter Please. so much. I know there were so many people, um, you know, that would tell me, Oh, I haven't got it yet. Or, um, I'm planning to, and I'm like thinking, just, just do it now. Just do it now. (laughs) I I feel like I'm a one person campaign to help people understand just how important pre-order sales are to authors and publishers, booksellers. Well, one, one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I, I see that you have a love for CrossFit like I do. Um, what, what drew you to the sport and what do you love about it? I had a friend that was a part of a CrossFit community for years that would talk about it and talk about it until he, until, you know, we all kind of hard roll our eyes about it uh, <laughs> for a while. Um, but just the wa- watching him transform his body, uh-huh. you know, the, seeing the picture, seeing the proof um, uh, just was impressive. And, and it, And I went and tried it out. Um, You know, I had bought one of those, you know, you get so many, you pay in advance and you get so many. And I had tried it out when I still had a gym membership elsewhere and, and loved it. And so when my gym membership expired, which I should have just joined right then and there, not waited, but I did. Um, I had joined and that was three and a half years ago. And I have, um, 
become one of those people who talk about it and that other people hard roll their eyes at. (laughs) But when you um, experience what that, what you can do in that community and with those people and the friendships that you form and those bonds that you form, you know, in the box, lifting heavy and, you know, (laughs) um, there's just nothing like it. And, you know, the ways that the benefits that I had in not just my body, but I do it as a form of self-care and to treat and manage post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Because a lot of that energy that's generated by the anxiety that's triggered by post-traumatic stress, um, a lot of that gets uh, left on the floor of that box every day. And I go five days a week. Oh, do you really? It's if I'm here in town, if I'm not traveling and it's eight thirty in the morning, uh, Monday through Friday, you're going to find me in the box. Well, that's definitely my favorite form of stress relief. I cannot do CrossFit right now because I'm having some back problems, but I have loved it. I'm so sorry. I know. Uh, I've I've loved it for many years though. And, um, it definitely changed my, um, perspective on, I, you know, I was one of those people that was burn all the calories. And, um, I turned into a person that cared about strength and a lot more than just calorie burning. And so the the things that I have worked on the most, um, and the most, uh, with the most attention and intention is mobility Mm -hmm. and strengthening, of course. Um, but mobility, um, I, when I started, um, because of the extra weight that I carry and still carry, I mean, I should, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say it, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, I was at one point 241 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't like, you know, they, the bar, you can hang on the bar and do pull-ups. Yeah. I couldn't even hang my body weight. I couldn't hang on the bar, um, for about two years. So it just, it caused my shoulders too much pain mm-hmm. to even just hang. And yeah. so for two years I would go and when everybody else is doing pull-ups, I'm hanging on the bar with my feet fully on the ground, carrying some of that weight and, and just creating mobility in my shoulders and strengthening my shoulders and my uh, ligaments and my elbows and wrists and hands. And now I can hang on the bar and I'm working on my pull-ups. Um, of course, I can't do a pull-up yet because I do still carry extra weight. And so I'm getting stronger as I go and losing weight as I go. And so eventually that's going to become the magic thing that lets me do a pull-up one day. Yeah, I had a a pull-up goal for many years. um, And I actually just kind of got to the point where I thought it wasn't possible. Like I was like, I just can't do them. I'm not, my body isn't made for this. And eventually I did get to the point where I could do strict pull-ups and um, all through a lot of hard work at CrossFit. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot do them anymore. <laughs> uh, after having a couple babies and, um, mm-hmm. not, you know, having to just rest my body in a lot of other ways. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, it was, it was a pretty amazing, uh, feeling to, I, and I did, I have a video of me doing five strict pull-ups in a row mm-hmm. and I was just, I mean, I was in shock and it was one of the, honestly, we- weirdly, it was one of the most proudest moments of my life because mm-hmm. I had never, I had never worked so hard for something. And, um, yeah. it was really, it, I proved to myself that something I thought I couldn't do that I, I could. Uh, so right. it was pretty cool. And there's a lot of moments that you can have like that in the gym, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. And now where I'm at is 
the progress that I'm making is so incremental and, and small, but because of how long I've been doing this, these movements, when I am able to, to do one of the movements better or faster or, you know, more correct form or whatever, I am very keenly aware of each of those little incremental um, movements in the right direction and the progress that I'm making. Yeah. And it's just a, it's a proud moment yeah. for me because I'm not one of these little, you know, young, skinny, <laughs> you know, model bodies, you know, of the women that I work out with. You know, I, I am this mom who I gave birth five times and have grown five children in my belly and, and my body reflects that. And then, you know, all the, the weight issues I've had my entire adult life because you know, I grew up in abject poverty, you know, eating food out of dumpsters, you know, for, for, for a long time. And so once you get around food and you have, and you don't have food insecurity anymore, uh, you eat. (laughs) And so food has been my source of comfort for decades. And, and so my relationship with food has been, you know, such a, a big part of my life. Um, and so I have a body that shows that and, you know, I, I'm working at it and I'm incrementally getting better, but you know, I, I'm proud of the work that I do there every day. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, okay. Last couple questions. End of the podcast. Um, what is a piece of advice that you want to pass down? Um, you know, your kids are grown, but what's a piece of advice maybe to pass down to your grandchild? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm thinking about that little baby right now. Mm. Um, like very much, you know, your parents do the best job they can. My mom did the best she could with what she had. I did the best I could with my children, with what I was given. And I am proud of my, of the job I did, even though, you know, I've offered to pay for the counseling they might need, you know, in their adulthood. (laughs) That's something we're all you know, going to say later, I think. Yeah, I mean, I and I've actually followed through on it with a few of them that have taken me up on the offer, and and I mean it because I know that um, I did, even though I did the best I could and I had the best intentions, there were some ways in which I really messed up my kids because of my own faults and failings. Um, and for sa- the same thing, I would tell my granddaughter is, your mom and dad are going to do the best they can, and. Mm you know, forgiving and, um, and letting go of some of those grievances. is just so important in the grand scheme of things. When you are able to let go of the hurts that you carry, that just frees you to be yourself. Because when you're carrying around hurt and pain and um, anger or bitterness, um, it turns you into a person that you're not. Yeah. And, and me letting go of that, of the things that my mom and my dad inflicted on me and letting go of the, the right to get even, you know, um, it just freed me. Like my mom is still her, whoever she is and she's over there living her best life. And if I was over here just wrecked with, you know, bitterness and filled with bitterness and rage or anger at her, um, that would just rob me of joy today. And so you know, letting go of that and finding ways to really heal um, from that. Not just saying it didn't matter or, okay, I forgive you. You know, I, I'm just still angry though or whatever. But 
you know, there's a thing that forgiveness is and there's a thing that it's not. Mm-hmm. And forgiveness is always about the person that's offering it so yeah. that they can be free. Yeah. That's it's so not, true. it's not about the person who offended. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, you know, we kind of talked about books, but is there anything <laughs> that you are reading now that you're loving? Well, um, I am reading a books that I just launched Jordan Dooley's own your every day. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it's a good book and, and, uh, one that has a universal message for women. Um, and so that's a great one, but I always, whenever I'm talking about books, you know, I want to talk about Brene Brown, um, yeah. because her books have been so, um, beneficial to my life and so instrumental in my healing and in the ways that I'm now able to tell my story without shame mm-hmm. and with vulnerability. So Brene Brown, you know, is always on the top of my list. Um, Dallas Willard is one of my favorite authors, spiritually speaking, um, shaped my life, shaped the, the, the way that I see God and helped me undo a lot of and unlearn a lot of what I needed to unlearn in order to be able to learn um, new ways of experiencing my spirituality. And then uh, my spiritual mentor, Bob Hamp, um, bobhamp.com. He has three books out now and is getting ready, is writing a fourth one that um, all have been instrumental in my life. Any podcasts that you're loving? <laughs> well, um, I'm currently listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast. Okay. Um, that one, I've subscribed to that one just because if you have any interest at all in the topic of polygamy and how it came about and what and who and where and when and why, um, that one is the, is the one. Okay. Um, one thing that I will, um, I think I can say it now without, um, getting into any kind of trouble is that, um, my sister and I are getting ready to host a podcast. Oh, fun. And, um, it's, uh, which sister it's going, is this? It's my sister, Celia, okay. the one that I talk about in the book a lot. Um, so we're going to be talking about our family of origin and in the, you know, the ways that it affected our life and everything that happened, we're going to be discussing that. So, um, you can subscribe to my email list for updates. Um, we're going to be going to LA to record it in, in uh, towards the end of the summer. So I don't know when it's going to be released or when it's going to come out, but I'm super excited about this opportunity. Well, mm-hmm. I will definitely be tuning into that one. <laughs> All right, Anna. Well, thank you so much for spending a whole hour with me talking today. I really appreciate it. I know that you probably get a lot of requests, so it means a lot to me that you took the time to chat and just... Oh, this is my pleasure. Yeah. All of it. Um, I will be sure to be linking up everything that you mentioned. We want to make sure everybody knows where all your stuff is and get connected. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you're if you're listening, you've been encouraged to go buy someone's book today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and definitely buy Anna's yeah. book, The Polygamous Daughter. Yeah. We, we yeah. want to see more, more sales there. Um, so no matter which book you end up buying, um, post a picture of it on your socials <laughs> and tag me. Yes. And say that I was the one who recommended it. I want to know. That's a great idea. Yeah. And don't forget to leave those Amazon and Goodreads reviews. Too. Yes. Review the books, please. <laughs> 
All right, Anna. Well, thank you again. And um, I'll let you get back to your day, but I really do appreciate chatting today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for listening today, guys. I know that you enjoyed that conversation with Anna. I was truly honored that she would take the time to share it with me um, after probably sharing it many times with people over the past two years since her book came out. Um, but I think that it's a powerful message and one that a lot of people need to hear. So I know that she's going to keep telling it. Um, if you haven't picked up a copy of The Polygamist Daughter or my book, Leaving Cloud Nine, The True Story of a Life Resurrected from the Ashes of Poverty, Trauma, and Mental Illness, please head over to Amazon and grab both of those. You can get used copies. You can find them at the library even. Um, But we would love it if you would pick a copy of each of those up and give them a read and share them with a friend that might benefit from them. Thank you so much for tuning in today, guys. We've got a lot more guests lined up. I've recorded several great interviews that I can't wait to share with you in the coming weeks. And until then, I will see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.